Where the M25, now a screaming frozen circle, intersects with the M40 to Oxfordshire, police were clustered around in ever-increasing quantities. Since Crowley crossed the divide half an hour earlier, their number had doubled, on the M40 side anyway. No one in London was getting out. In addition to the police, there were also approximately 200 others standing around and inspecting the M25 through binoculars. They included representatives from Her Majesty's Army, the Bomb Disposal Squad, MI5, MI6, the Special Branch, and the CIA. There was also a man selling hot dogs. Everybody was cold and wet and puzzled and irritable, with the exception of one police officer who was cold, wet, puzzled, irritable and exasperated. Look, I don't care if you believe me or not. He sighed. All I'm telling you is what I saw. It was an old car, a Rolls or a Bentley, one of those flash vintage jobs, and it made it over the bridge. One of the senior army technicians interrupted. It can't have done. According to our instruments, the temperature above the M25 is somewhere in excess of 700 degrees centigrade. Or 140 degrees below, added his assistant. Or 140 degrees below zero, agreed the senior technician. There does appear to be some confusion on that score, although I think we can safely attribute it to mechanical error of some kind. Footnote. This was true. There wasn't a thermometer on Earth that could have been persuaded to register both 700 degrees centigrade and minus 140 degrees centigrade at the same time, which was the correct temperature. But, he went on, the fact remains that we can't even get a helicopter directly over the M25 without winding up with helicopter McNuggets. How on earth can you tell me that a vintage car drove over it unharmed? I didn't say it drove over it unharmed, corrected the policeman, who was thinking seriously about leaving the Metropolitan Police and going into business with his brother, who was resigning his job with the electricity board and was going to start breeding chickens. It burst into flames. It just kept on going. Do you seriously expect any of us to believe? began somebody. A high-pitched keening noise, haunting and strange, like a thousand glass harmonicas being played in unison, all slightly off-key, like the sound of the molecules of the air itself, wailing in pain. And vroosh! Over their heads it sailed, forty feet in the air, engulfed in a deep blue nimbus which faded to red at the edges. A little white motor scooter. And riding it, a middle-aged woman in a pink helmet, and holding tightly to her a short man in a Macintosh and a day-glow green crash helmet. The motor scooter was too far up for anyone to see that his eyes were tightly shut, but they were. The woman was screaming. What she was screaming was this. Geronimo! One of the advantages of the wasabi, as Newt was always keen to point out, was that when it was badly damaged, it was very hard to tell. Newt had to keep driving Dick Turpin onto the shoulder to avoid fallen branches. You've made me drop all the cards on the floor. The car thumped back onto the road. A small voice from somewhere under the glove compartment said, Oil pressure or what? Oh, I'll never be able to sort them out now, she moaned. 
You don't have to, said Newt manically. Just pick one, any one. It won't matter. What do you mean? Well, if Agnes is right and we're doing all this because she's predicted it, then any card picked right now has got to be relevant. That's logic. It's nonsense. Yeah. Look, you're even here because she predicted it. And have you thought what we're going to say to the Colonel? If we get to see him, which of course we won't. Well, if we're reasonable... Listen, I know these kinds of places. They have huge guards made out of teak guarding the gates, Anathema. And they have white helmets and real guns, you understand, which fire real bullets made of real lead, which can go right into you and bounce around and come out of the same hole before you can even say, excuse me, we have reason to believe that World War Three is due any moment and they're going to do the show right here. And then they have serious men in suits with bulging jackets who take you into a little room without windows and ask you questions like... Are you now or have you ever been a member of a pinko-subversive organisation such as any British political party? And we're nearly there. Look, it's got gates and wire fences and everything. And probably the kind of dogs that eat people. I think you're getting rather overexcited, said Anathema quietly, picking the last of the file cards up from the floor of the car. Overexcited? No! I'm getting very calmly worried that someone might shoot me. I'm sure Agnes would have mentioned it if we were going to be shot. She's very good at that sort of thing. She began absent-mindedly to shuffle the file cards. You know, she said, carefully cutting the cards and riffling the two piles together, I read somewhere that there's a sect that believes that computers are the tools of the devil. They say that Armageddon will come about because of the Antichrist being good with computers. Apparently it's mentioned somewhere in Revelations. I think I must have read about it in a newspaper recently. A Daily Mail, letter from America. Um, August the 3rd, said Newt, just after the story about the woman in Worms, Nebraska, who taught her duck to play the accordion. Mm, said Anathema, spreading the cards face down on her lap. So, computers are tools of the devil, thought Newt. He had no problem believing it. Computers had to be the tools of somebody, and all he knew for certain was that it definitely wasn't him. The car jerked to a halt. The airbase looked battered. Several large trees had fallen down near the entrance, and some men with a digger were trying to shift them. The guard on duty was watching them disinterestedly, but he half turned and looked coldly at the car. All right, said Newt. Pick a card. 3001, behind the eagle's nest a great ash hath fallen. Oh, is that all? Yes, we always thought it was something to do with the Russian Revolution. Keep going along this road and turn left. The turning led to a narrow lane with the base's perimeter fence on the left-hand side. And now pull in here. There's often cars here and no one takes any notice, said Anathema. What is this place? It's the local lover's lane. Oh, is that why it appears to be paved with rubber? They walked along the hedge-shaded lane for a hundred yards until they reached the ash tree. Agnes had been right. It was quite great. It had fallen right across the fence. A guard was sitting on it, smoking a cigarette. He was black. Newt always felt guilty in the presence of black Americans in case they blamed him for two hundred years of slave trading. 
The man stood up when they approached, and then sagged into an easier stance. Oh, hi, Anathema, he said. Hi, George. Terrible storm, wasn't it? Sure was. They walked on. He watched them out of sight. You know him? said Newt, with forced nonchalance. Oh, sure. Sometimes a few of them come down to the pub. Pleasant enough, in a well-scrubbed way. Would he shoot us if we just walked in? said Newt. He might well point a gun at us in a menacing way, Anathema conceded. Well, that's good enough for me. What do you suggest we do, then? Well, Agnes must have known something. So? I suppose we just wait. It's not too bad now the wind's gone down. Oh. Newt looked at the clouds piling up on the horizon. Good old Agnes, he said. Adam pedalled steadily along the road, Dog running along behind and occasionally trying to bite his back tyre out of sheer excitement. There was a clacking noise, and Pepper swung out of her drive. You could always tell Pepper's bike. She thought it was improved by a piece of cardboard cunningly held against the wheel by a clothes peg. Cats had learned to take evasive action when she was two streets away. I reckon we can cut along Drover's Lane and then up through Roundhead Woods, said Pepper. It's all muddy, said Adam. That's right, said Pepper nervously. It gets all muddy up there. We ought to go along by the chalk pit. It's always dry because of the chalk. And then up by the sewage farm. Brian and Wensleydale pulled in behind them. Wensleydale's bicycle was black and shiny and sensible. Brian's might have been white once, but its colour was lost beneath a thick layer of mud. It's stupid calling it a military base, said Pepper. I went up there when they had their open day, and they had no guns or missiles or anything. Just knobs and dials and brass bands playing. Yes, said Adam. Well, not much military about knobs and dials, said Pepper. I don't know, really, said Adam. It's amazing what you can do with knobs and dials. I got a kit for Christmas, Wensleydale volunteered. All electric bits. There are a few knobs and dials in it. You can make a radio or a thing that goes beep. I don't know, said Adam thoughtfully. I'm thinking more of certain people patching into the worldwide military communications network and telling all the computers and stuff to start fighting. Call, said Brian. That'd be wicked. Sort of, said Adam. It is a high and lonely destiny to be chairman of the Lower Tadfield Residents Association. R.P. Tyler, short, well-fed, satisfied, stomped down a country lane accompanied by his wife's miniature poodle, Schutze. R.P. Tyler knew the difference between right and wrong. There were no moral greys of any kind in his life. He was not, however, satisfied simply with being vouchsafed the difference between right and wrong. He felt it his bounden duty to tell the world. Not for R.P. Tyler, the soapbox, the polemic verse, the broadsheet. R.P. Tyler's chosen forum was the letter column of the Tadfield Advertiser. If a neighbour's tree was inconsiderate enough to shed leaves into R.P. Tyler's garden, R.P. Tyler would first carefully sweep them all up, place them in boxes, and leave the boxes outside his neighbour's front door with a stern note. 
Then he would write a letter to the Tadfield advertiser. If he sighted teenagers sitting on the village green, their portable cassette players playing, and they were enjoying themselves, he would take it upon himself to point out to them the error of their ways. And after he had fled their jeering, he would write to the Tadfield advertiser on the decline of morality and the youth of today. Since his retirement last year, the letters had increased to the point where not even the Tadfield advertiser was able to print all of them. Indeed, the letter R.P. Tyler had completed before setting out on his evening walk had begun, Sirs, I note with distress that the newspapers of today no longer feel obligated to their public, we, the people who pay your wages. He surveyed the fallen branches that littered the narrow country road. I don't suppose, he pondered, they think of the cleaning-up bill when they send us these storms. Parish council has to foot the bill to clean it all up, and we, the taxpayers, pay their wages. The they, in this thought, were the weather forecasters on Radio 4, whom R.P. Tyler blamed for the weather. Footnote. He did not have a television. Or, as his wife put it, Ronald wouldn't have one of those things in the house, would you, Ronald? And he always agreed, although secretly he would have liked to have seen some of the smut and filth and violence that the National Viewers and Listeners Association complained of. Not because he wanted to see it, of course, just because he wanted to know what other people should be protected from. Schutze stopped by a roadside beech tree to cock its leg. R.P. Tyler looked away, embarrassed. It might be that the sole purpose of his evening constitutional was to allow the dog to relieve itself, but he was dashed if he'd admit that to himself. He stared up at the storm clouds. They were banked up high in towering piles of smudged grey and black. It wasn't just the flickering tongues of lightning that forked through them like the opening sequence of a Frankenstein movie. It was the way they stopped when they reached the borders of Lower Tadfield. And in this centre was a circular patch of daylight. But the light had a stretched yellow quality to it, like a forced smile. It was so quiet. There was a low roaring. Down the narrow lane came four motorbikes. They shot past him and turned the corner, disturbing a cock pheasant who whirred across the lane in a nervous arc of russet and green. Vandals! called R.P. Tyler after them. The countryside wasn't made for people like them. It was made for people like him. He jerked Schutz's lead, and they marched along the road. Five minutes later, he turned the corner to find three of the motorcyclists standing around a fallen signpost, a victim of the storm. The fourth, a tall man with a mirrored visor, remained on his bike. R.P. Tyler observed the situation and leapt effortlessly to a conclusion. These vandals, he had of course been right, had come to the countryside in order to desecrate the war memorial and to overturn signposts. He was about to advance on them sternly when it came to him that he was outnumbered four to one and that they were taller than he was and that they were undoubtedly violent psychopaths. No one but a violent psychopath rode motorbikes in R.P. Tyler's world. So he raised his chin and began to strut past them without apparently noticing they were there. Footnote. 
Although, as a member, read founder of his local neighbourhood watch scheme, he did attempt to memorise the motorbike's number plates. All the while, he was composing in his head a letter. Sirs, this evening I noted with distress a large number of hooligans on motor bicycles infesting our fair village. Why, oh, why does the government do nothing about this plague of? Hi. Said one of the motorcyclists, raising his visor to reveal a thin face and a trim black beard. We're kind of lost. Ah, said R. P. Tyler disapprovingly. The signpost must have blew down. Said the motorcyclist. Yes, I suppose it must. Agreed, R. P. Tyler. He noticed with surprise that he was getting hungry. Yeah, well. We're heading for Lower Tadfield. An officious eyebrow raised. You're Americans, with the Air Force base, I suppose. Sirs, when I did national service, I was a credit to my country. I notice with horror and dismay that airmen from the Tadfield Air Base are driving around our noble countryside dressed no better than common thugs. While I appreciate their importance in defending the freedom of the Western world. Then his love of giving instructions took over. You go back down that road for half a mile, then first left. It's in a deplorable state of disrepair, I'm afraid. I've written numerous letters to the council about it. Are you civil servants or civil masters? That's what I asked them. After all, who pays your wages? Then second right. Only it's not exactly right. It's on the left, but you'll find it bends round toward the right eventually. It signposted Porritt's Lane, but of course it isn't Porritt's Lane. You look at an ordnance survey map, you'll see it's simply the eastern end of Forest Hill Lane. You'll come out in the village. Now you go past the Bull and Fiddle.、Uh, that's a public house. And then when you get to the church, I've pointed out to the people who compile the ordnance survey map that it's a church with a spire, not a church with a tower. Indeed, I have written to the Tadfield Advertiser, suggesting they mount a local campaign to get the map corrected. And I have every hope that once these people realise with whom they are dealing, you'll see a hasty U-turn from them, and then you'll get to a crossroads. Now you go straight across that crossroads, and you'll immediately come to a second crossroads. Now you can take either the left-hand fork or go straight on. Either way, you'll arrive at the air base, although the left-hand fork is almost a tenth of a mile shorter, and you can't miss it. Famine stared at him blankly. I um, I'm not sure I I got that. He began. I did. Let us go. Schutze gave a little yelp and darted behind R. P. Tyler, where it remained shivering. The strangers climbed back onto their bikes. The one in white, a hippie by the look of him, thought R. P. Tyler, dropped an empty crisp packet onto the grass shoulder. Excuse me, barked Tyler. Is that your crisp packet? Oh, it's not just mine," said the boy. "It's everybody's." R. P. Tyler drew himself up to his full height. Footnote: five foot six. Young man," he said, "how would you feel if I came over to your house and dropped litter everywhere?" Pollution smiled wistfully. "Very, very pleased," he breathed. "Oh, that would be wonderful." Beneath his bike, an oil slick puddled a rainbow on the wet road. Engines revved. I missed something," 
said Wall. Now, why are we meant to make a U-turn by the church? Just follow me, said the tall one in front, and the four rode off together. R.P. Tyler stared after them until his attention was distracted by the sound of something going clack, clack, clack. He turned. Four figures on bicycles shot past him, closely followed by the scampering figure of a small dog. You! Stop! shouted R.P. Tyler. The them braked to a halt and looked at him. I knew it was you, Adam Young, and your little <laughs> cabal. What might I inquire you children doing out at this time of night? Do your fathers know you're out? The leader of the cyclists turned. I can't see how you can say it's late, he said. Seems to me, seems to me that if the sun's still out, then it's not late. It's past your bedtime anyway, R.P. Tyler informed them. And don't stick out your tongue at me, young lady. This was to Pepper, or I will be writing a letter to your mother, informing her of the lamentable and unladylike state of her offspring's manners. Well, excuse us, said Adam, aggrieved. Pepper was just looking at you. I didn't know there was any law against looking. There was a commotion on the grass. Schutze, who was a particularly refined toy French poodle, of the kind only possessed by people who were never able to fit children into their household budgets, was being menaced by dog. Master Young, ordered R.P. Tyler, please get your, your mutt away from my Schutze. Tyler did not trust dog. When he had first met the dog three days ago, it had snarled at him and glowed its eyes red. This had impelled Tyler to begin a letter, pointing out that Dog was undoubtedly rabid, certainly a danger to the community, and should be put down for the general good, until his wife had reminded him that glowing red eyes weren't a symptom of rabies, or, for that matter, anything seen outside of the kind of film that neither of the Tylers would be caught dead at, but knew all they needed to know about, thank you very much. Adam looked astounded. Dog's not a mutt. Dog's a remarkable dog. He's clever. Dog, you get off Mr. Tyler's horrible old poodle. Dog ignored him. He'd got a lot of dog catching up still to do. Dog, said Adam ominously. His dog slunk back to his master's bicycle. I don't believe you've answered my question. Where are you for off to? To the airbase, said Brian. If that's all right with you, said Adam, with what he hoped was bitter and scathing sarcasm. I mean, we wouldn't want to go there if it wasn't all right with you. You cheeky little monkey, said R.P. Tyler. When I see your father, Adam Young, I will inform him in no uncertain terms that... But the them were already peddling off down the road in the direction of Lower Tadfield Air Base travelling by the Them's route, which was shorter and simpler and more scenic than the route suggested by Mr. Tyler. R.P. Tyler had composed a lengthy mental letter on the failings of the youth of today. It covered falling educational standards, the lack of respect given to their elders and betters, the way they always seem to slouch these days instead of walking with a proper upright bearing, Juvenile delinquency, the return of compulsory national service, birching, flogging, and dog licenses. He was very satisfied with it. He had a sneaking suspicion that it would be too good for the Tadfield advertiser, and had decided to send it to the Times. 
Put, 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 put. Excuse me, love, said a warm female voice. I think we're lost. It was an aging motor scooter, and it was being ridden by a middle-aged woman. Clutching her tightly, his eyes screwed shut, was a raincoated little man with a bright green crash helmet on. Sticking up between them was what appeared to be an antique gun with a funnel-shaped muzzle. Oh, now where are you going? Lower Tabfield. I'm not sure of the exact address, but we're looking for someone, said the woman. Then, in a totally different voice, she said, His name is Adam Young. R.P. Tyler boggled. You want that boy? he asked. Well, what's he done now? No, no, don't tell me. I don't want to know. Boy? said the woman. You didn't tell me he was a boy. Well, how old is he? Then, she said, he's eleven. Well, I do wish you'd mentioned this before. It puts a completely different complexion on things. R.P. Tyler just stared. Then he realised what was going on. The woman was a ventriloquist. What he had taken for a man in a green crash helmet, he now saw, was a ventriloquist's dummy. He wondered how he could ever have assumed it was human. He felt the whole thing was in vaguely bad taste. I saw Adam Young not five minutes ago, he told the woman. He and his little cronies were on their way to the American air base. Oh, dear, said the woman, paling slightly. I've never really liked the Yanks. They're really very nice people, you know. Well, yes, but you can't trust people who pick up the ball all the time when they play football. Ah, excuse me, said R.P. Tyler. I, I think it's very good. Very impressive. I'm deputy chairman of the local Rotary Club, and I was wondering, do you do private functions? Only on Thursdays, said Madame Tracy disapprovingly, and I charge extra. And I wondered if you could direct us to... Mr. Tyler had been here before. He wordlessly extended a finger, and the little scooter went put-put-put-put-put-put down the narrow country lane. As it did so, the grey dummy in the green helmet turned around and opened one eye. "'Ye great southern pillock!' it croaked. R.P. Tyler was offended, but also disappointed. He'd hoped it would be more lifelike. R.P. Tyler, only ten minutes away from the village, paused, while Schutze attempted another of its wide range of eliminatory functions. He gazed over the fence... His knowledge of country law was a little hazy, but he felt fairly sure that if the cows lay down, it meant rain. If they were standing, it would probably be fine. These cows were taking it in turns to execute slow and solemn somersaults, and Tyler wondered what it presaged for the weather. He sniffed. Something was burning. There was an unpleasant smell of scorched metal and rubber and leather. Excuse me, said a voice from behind him. R.P. Tyler turned around. There was a large, once-black car on fire in the lane, and a man in sunglasses was leaning out of one window, saying through the smoke, I'm sorry, I've managed to get a little lost. Can you direct me to Lower Tadfield Air Base? I know it's around here somewhere. Your car is on fire. No, Tyler just couldn't bring himself to say it. I mean, the man had to know that, didn't he? He was sitting in the middle of it. 
Possibly it was some kind of practical joke. So instead, he said, I think you must have taken a wrong turn about a mile back. A signpost has blown down. The stranger smiled. Yeah, that must be it, he said. The orange flames flickering below him gave him an almost infernal appearance. The wind blew towards Tyler, across the car, and he felt his eyebrows frizzle. Excuse me, young man, but your car is on fire and you are sitting in it without burning, and incidentally, it's red hot in places. No. Should he ask the man if he wanted him to phone the AA? Instead, he explained the route carefully, trying not to stare. Oh, that's terrific. Much obliged, said Crowley, as he began to wind up the window. R.P. Tyler had to say something. Excuse me, young man, he said. Yes? I mean, it's not the kind of thing you don't notice, your car being on fire. A tongue of flame licked across the charred dashboard. Funny weather we are having, isn't it? He said lamely. Is it? said Crowley. I honestly hadn't noticed. And he reversed back down the country lane in his burning car. Well, that's probably because your car is on fire, said R.P. Tyler sharply. He jerked Schutz's lead, dragged the little dog to heel. To the editor. Sir, I would like to draw your attention to a recent tendency I have noticed for today's young people to ignore perfectly sensible safety precautions while driving. This evening, I was asked for directions by a gentleman whose car was... No. Driving a car that... No. It was on fire. His temper getting worse, R.P. Tyler stomped the final stretch back into the village. Hi, shouted R.P. Tyler. Young. Mr. Young was in his front garden, sitting on his deck chair, smoking his pipe. This had more to do with Deirdre's recent discovery of the menace of passive smoking and banning of smoking in the house than he would care to admit to his neighbours. It did not improve his temper. Neither did being addressed as young by Mr. Tyler. Yes? Your son, Adam. Mr. Young sighed. What's he done now? Do you know where he is? Mr. Young checked his watch. Getting ready for bed, I would assume. Tyler grinned tightly, triumphantly. I doubt it. I saw him and his little fiends and that appalling mongrel not half an hour ago cycling towards the airbase. Mr. Young puffed on his pipe. You know how strict they are up there, said Mr. Tyler, in case Mr. Young hadn't got the message. You know what a one your son is for pressing buttons and things, he added. Mr. Young took his pipe out of his mouth and examined the stem thoughtfully. Hmm, he said. I see, he said. Right, he said. And he went inside. At exactly that same moment, four motorbikes swished to a halt a few hundred yards from the main gate. The riders switched off their engines and raised their helmet visors. Well, three of them did. I was rather hoping we could crash through the barriers, said War, wistfully. That'd only cause trouble, said Famine. Good. Trouble for us, I mean. The power and phone lines must be down, but they're bound to have generators, and they'll certainly have radio. If someone starts reporting that terrorists have invaded the base, then people will start acting logically. 
and the whole plan collapses. Ah. We go in, we do the job, we go out, we let human nature take its course, said Death. This isn't how I imagined it, chaps, said War. I haven't been waiting for thousands of years just to fiddle around with bits of wire. It's not what you'd call dramatic. Albrecht Dürer didn't waste his time doing woodcuts of the four button presses of the apocalypse. I do know that. I thought that would be trumpets, said Pollution. Look at it like this, said Famine. It's just groundwork. We get to do the riding forth afterwards. The proper riding forth, wings of the storm, and so on. You've got to be flexible. Weren't we supposed to meet someone? said War. There was no sound but the metallic noises of cooling motorbike engines. Then Pollution said slowly, You know, I can't say I imagined it'd be somewhere like this, either. I thought it'd be, well, a big city, or a big country. New York, perhaps, or Moscow, or Armageddon itself. There was another pause. Then War said, where is Armageddon, anyway? Funny, you should ask, said Famine. I've always meant to look it up. There's an Armageddon, Pennsylvania, said Pollution. Or maybe it's Massachusetts or one of them places. Lots of guys in heavy beards and seriously black hats. No, said Famine. It's somewhere in Israel, I think. Mount Carmel. I thought that was where they grow avocados. And the end of the world. Is that right? That's one big avocado. I think I went there once, said Pollution. The old city of Megiddo, just before it fell down. Nice place. Interesting royal gateway. War looked at the greenness around them. Boy, she said. Did we take a wrong turning? The geography is immaterial. Sorry, Lord. If Armageddon is anywhere, it is everywhere. That's right, said Famine. We're not talking about a few square miles of scrub and guts anymore. There was another pause. Let us go. War coughed. It's just that I thought that... He'd be coming with us. Death adjusted his gauntlets. This, he said firmly, is a job for the professionals. Afterwards, Sergeant Thomas A. Deisenberger recalled events at the gate as having happened like this. A large staff car drew up by the gate. It was sleek and official-looking, although afterwards he wasn't entirely sure why he had thought this or why it sounded momentarily as though it were powered by motorbike engines. Four generals got out. Again, the sergeant was a little uncertain of why he had thought this. They had proper identification. What kind of identification, admittedly, he couldn't quite recall, but it was proper. He saluted, and one of them said, Surprise inspection, soldier. To which Sergeant Thomas A. Deisenberger replied, Sir, I have not been informated as to the incidence of a surprise inspection at this time, sir.
Of course not, said one of the generals. That's because it's a surprise. The sergeant saluted again. Sir, permission to confirmate this intelligence with base command, sir, he said uneasily. The tallest and thinnest of the generals strolled a little way from the group, turned his back, and folded his arms. One of the others put a friendly arm around the sergeant's shoulders and leaned forward in a conspiratorial way. Now, see here, he squinted at the sergeant's name tag. Dysenberger, maybe I'll give you a break. It's a surprise inspection, got that? Surprise. That means no getting on the horn the moment we've gone through, understand? And no leaving your post? Career soldier like you will understand, am I right? He added. He winked. Otherwise, you'll find yourself busted so low you'll have to say sir to an imp. Sergeant Thomas A. Dysenberger stared at him. Private, hissed one of the other generals. According to her tag, her name was War. Sergeant Dysenberger had never seen a female general like her before, but she was certainly an improvement. What? Private, not imp. Yeah, that's what I meant, yeah. Private. Okay, soldier. The sergeant considered the very limited number of options at his disposal. Sir, surprise inspection, sir, he said. Provisionatedly classificationed at this time, said Famine, who had spent years learning how to sell to the federal government and could feel the language coming back to him. Sir, affirmative, sir, said the sergeant. Good man, said Famine, as the barrier was raised. You'll go a long way. He glanced at his watch. Very shortly. Sometimes human beings are very much like bees. Bees are fiercely protective of their hive, provided you are outside it. Once you're in, the workers sort of assume that it must have been cleared by management and take no notice. Various free-loading insects have evolved a mellifluous existence because of this very fact. Humans act the same way. No one stopped the four as they purposefully made their way into one of the long, low buildings under the forest of radio masts. No one paid any attention to them. Perhaps they saw nothing at all. Perhaps they saw what their minds were instructed to see, because the human brain is not equipped to see war, famine, pollution, and death when they don't want to be seen, and has got so good at not seeing that it often manages not to see them, even when they abound on every side. The alarms were totally brainless, and thought they saw four people where people shouldn't be, and went off like anything. Newt did not smoke, because he did not allow nicotine to gain entry to the temple of his body, or, more accurately, the small Welsh Methodist tin tabernacle of his body. If he had been a smoker, he would have choked on the cigarette that he would have been smoking at this time in order to steady his nerves. Anathema stood up purposefully and smoothed the creases in her skirt. Don't worry, she said. They don't apply to us. Something's probably happening inside. She smiled at his pale face. Come on, she said. It's not the OK Corral. No, they've got better guns, for one thing, said Newt. She helped him up. Never mind, she said. I'm sure you'll think of a way. It was inevitable that all four of them couldn't contribute equally 
War thought. She'd been surprised at her natural affinity for modern weapons systems, which were so much more efficient than bits of sharp metal. And, of course, pollution laughed at absolutely foolproof, fail-safe devices. Even famine, at least, knew what computers were. Whereas, well, he didn't do anything much except hang around, although he did it with a certain style. It had occurred to war that there might one day be an end to war, an end to famine, possibly even an end to pollution. And perhaps this was why the fourth and greatest horseman was never exactly what you might call one of the lads. It was like having a tax inspector in your football team. Great to have him on your side, of course, but not the kind of person you wanted to have a drink and a chat with in the bar afterwards. You couldn't be 100% at your ease. A couple of soldiers ran through him as he looked over Pollution's skinny shoulder. What are those glittery things? he said, in the tones of one who knows he won't be able to understand the answer, but wants to be seen to be taking an interest. Seven-segment LED displays, said the boy. He laid loving hands on a bank of relays which fused under his touch, and then introduced a swathe of self-replicating viruses that whirred away on the electronic ether. I could really do without those bloody alarms, muttered Famine. Death absent-mindedly snapped his fingers. A dozen klaxons gurgled and died. I don't know. I rather liked them said Pollution. War reached inside another metal cabinet. This wasn't the way she'd expected things to be, she had to admit. But when she ran her fingers over and sometimes through the electronics, there was a familiar feel. It was an echo of what you got when you held a sword, and she felt a thrill of anticipation at the thought that this sword enclosed the whole world and a certain amount of sky above it as well. It loved her. A flaming sword. Mankind had not been very good at learning that swords are dangerous if left lying around, although it had done its limited best to make sure that the chances of one this size being wielded accidentally were high. A cheering thought, that. It was nice to think that mankind made a distinction between blowing their planet to bits by accident and doing it by design. Pollution plunged his hands into another rack of expensive electronics. The guard on the hole in the fence looked puzzled. He was aware of excitement back in the base, and his radio seemed to be picking up nothing but static, and his eyes were being drawn again and again to the card in front of him. He'd seen many identity cards in his time, military, CIA, FBI, KGB even, and being a young soldier had yet to grasp that the more insignificant an organization is, the more impressive are its identity cards. This one was hellishly impressive. His lips moved as he read it again, all the way from the Lord Protector of the Commonwealth of Britain, charges and demands, through the bit about commandeering or kindling rope and igniferous oils, right down to the signature of the W.A.'s First Lord Adjutant, Praise him all ye works of the Lord and fly fornication smith. Newt kept his thumb over the bit about nine pence per witch and tried to look like James Bond. Finally, the guard's probing intellect found a word he thought he recognized. 
What's this here? he said suspiciously. About us got to give you faggots. Oh, we have to have them, said Newt. We burn them. Say what? We burn them. The guard's face broadened into a grin, and they told him England was soft. Right on, he said. Something pressed into the small of his back. Drop your gun, said Anathema behind him, or I shall regret what I shall have to do next. Well, it's true, she thought, as she saw the man stiffen in terror. If he doesn't drop the gun, he'll find out this is a stick, and I shall really regret having to be shot. At the main gate, Sergeant Thomas A. Deisenberger was also having problems. A little man in a dirty mac kept pointing a finger at him and muttering, while a lady, who looked slightly like his mother, talked to him in urgent tones and kept interrupting herself in a different voice. It really is vitally important that we are allowed to speak to whoever is in charge, said Aziraphale. I really must ask that... He's right, you know. I'd be able to tell if he was lying. Yes, thank you. I think we'd really achieve something if you kindly allowed me to carry on. All right, thank you. I was only trying to put in a good word. Yes, uh, you were asking him to... Yes, all right. Now. Do you see my finger? shouted Shadwell whose sanity was still attached to him, but only on the end of a long and rather frayed string. Do you see it? This finger, laddie, could send ye to meet your maker. Sergeant Deisenberger stared at the black and purple nail a few inches from his face. As an offensive weapon, it rated quite highly, especially if it was ever used in the preparation of food. The telephone gave him nothing but static. He'd been told not to leave his post. His wound from Nam was starting to play up. Footnote. He'd slipped and fallen in a hotel shower when he took a holiday there in 1983. Now the mere sight of a bar of yellow soap could send him into near-fatal flashbacks. He wondered how much trouble he could get into for shooting non-American civilians. The four bicycles pulled up a little way from the base. Tire marks in the dust and a patch of oil indicated that other travellers had briefly rested there. What are we stopping for? said Pepper. I'm thinking, said Adam. It was hard. The bit of his mind that he knew as himself was still there, but it was trying to stay afloat on a fountain of tumultuous darkness. What he was aware of, though, was that his three companions were one hundred percent human. He'd got them into trouble before, in the way of torn clothes, docked pocket money and so on. But this one was almost certainly going to involve a lot more than being confined to the house and made to tidy up your room. On the other hand, there wasn't anyone else. All right, he said. We need some stuff, I think. We need a sword, a crown, and some scales. They stared at him. What? Just here? said Brian. There's nothing like that here. I don't know, said Adam. When you think about the games and all that, you know, we've played. Just to make Sergeant Deisenberger's day, a car pulled up and it was floating several inches off the ground because it had no tyres or paintwork. What it did have was a trail of blue smoke 
and when it stopped it made the pinging noises made by metal cooling down from a very high temperature. It looked as if it had smoked glass windows, although this was just an effect caused by it having ordinary glass windows, but a smoke-filled interior. The driver's door opened, and a cloud of choking fumes got out. Then Crowley followed it. He waved the smoke away from his face, blinked, and then turned the gesture into a friendly wave. Hi, he said. How's it going? Has the world ended yet? He won't let us in, Crowley, said Madame Tracy. Aziraphale? Is that you? Mm, nice dress, said Crowley vaguely. He wasn't feeling very well. For the last thirty miles he'd been imagining that a ton of burning metal, rubber and leather was a fully functioning automobile, and the Bentley had been resisting him fiercely. The hard part had been to keep the whole thing rolling after the all-weather radials had burned away. Beside him, the remains of the Bentley dropped suddenly onto its distorted wheel rims as he stopped imagining that it had tyres. He patted a metal surface hot enough to fry eggs on. You wouldn't get that sort of performance out of one of these modern cars, he said lovingly. They stared at him. There was a little electronic click. The gate was rising. The housing that contained the electric motor gave a mechanical groan and then gave up in the face of the unstoppable force acting on the barrier. Hey, said Sergeant Dysenberger, which one of you yo-yos did that? Zip, 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 and a small dog, its legs a blur. They stared at the four ferociously peddling figures that ducked under the barrier and disappeared into the camp. The sergeant pulled himself together. Hey, he said, but much more weakly this time. Did any of them kids have some space alien with a face like a friendly turd in a bike basket? I don't think so, said Crowley. Then, said Sergeant Dysenberger, they're in real trouble. He raised his gun. Enough of this pussyfooting around. He kept thinking of soap. And so, he said, are you? I warned ye, Shadwell began. This has gone on too long, said Aziraphale. Sort it out, Crowley, there's a dear chap. Mm-hmm, said Crowley. I'm the nice one, said Aziraphale. You can't expect me to... Oh, blast it. You tried to do the decent thing, and where does it get you? He snapped his fingers. There was a pop like an old-fashioned flashbulb, and Sergeant Thomas A. Dysenberger disappeared. Er, uh, said Aziraphale. See, said Shadwell, who hadn't quite got the hang of Madame Tracy's split personality. Nothing to it. You stick by me, you'll be all right. Well done, said Crowley. Never thought you had it in you. No, said Aziraphale, nor did I. In fact, I do hope I haven't sent him somewhere dreadful. You better get used to it right now, said Crowley. You just send them. Best not to worry about where they go. He looked fascinated. Aren't you going to introduce me to your new body? Oh? Ah, yes, um, yes, of course. Madame Tracy, this is Crowley. Crowley, Madame Tracy. Oh, charmed, I'm sure. Well, let's get on in, said Crowley. He looked sadly at the wreckage of the Bentley, and then brightened. A jeep was heading purposefully towards the gate. 
and it looked as though it was crowded with people who were about to shout questions and fire guns and not worry about which order they did this in. He brightened up. This was more what you might call his area of competence. He took his hands out of his pockets, and he raised them like Bruce Lee, and then he smiled like Lee Van Cleef. Ah, he said, here comes transport. They parked their bikes outside one of the low buildings. Winsleydale carefully locked his. He was that kind of boy. So what will these people look like? said Pepper. They could look like all sorts, said Adam, doubtfully. They're grown-ups, are they? said Pepper. Yes, said Adam. More grown-up than you've ever seen before, I reckon. Fighting grown-ups is never any use, said Wensleydale gloomily. You always get into trouble. You don't have to fight them, said Adam. You just do what I told you. The them looked at the things they were carrying. As far as tools to mend the world were concerned, they did not look incredibly efficient. How'll we find them, then? said Brian, doubtfully. I remember when we came to the open day, it's all rooms and stuff, lots of rooms and flashing lights. Adam stared thoughtfully at the buildings. The alarms were still yodeling. Well, he said, it seems to me... Hey, what are you kids doing here? It wasn't a 100% threatening voice, but it was near the end of its tether, and it belonged to an officer who'd spent ten minutes trying to make sense of a senseless world where alarms went off and doors didn't open. Two equally harassed soldiers stood behind him, slightly at a loss as to how to deal with four short and clearly Caucasian juveniles, one of them marginally female. Uh, don't you worry about us, said Adam airily. We're just looking around. Now you just... The lieutenant began. Go to sleep, said Adam. You just go to sleep. All you soldiers here, go to sleep. Then you won't get hurt. You all just go to sleep now. The lieutenant stared at him, his eyes trying to focus. Then he pitched forward. Coo, said Pepper, as the others collapsed. How did you do that? Well, said Adam cautiously, you know that bit about hypnotism in the boy's own book of 101 things to do that we could never make work? Yes. Well, it, it's sort of like that, only now I've found how to do it. He turned back to the communications building. He pulled himself together, his body unfolding from its habitual comfortable slouch into an upright bearing Mr. Tyler would have been proud of. Right, he said. He thought for a while. Then he said, Come and see. If you took the world away and just left the electricity, it would look like the most exquisite filigree ever made a ball of twinkling silver lines with the occasional coruscating spike of a satellite beam. Even the dark areas would glow with radar and commercial radio waves. It could be the nervous system of a great beast. Here and there cities make knots in the web, but most of the electricity is, as it were, mere musculature, concerned only with crude work. But for fifty years or so, people had been giving electricity brains. And now it was alive in the same way that fire is alive. Switches were welding shut. 
relays fused. In the heart of silicon chips, whose microscopic architecture looked like a street plan of Los Angeles, fresh pathways opened up. And hundreds of miles away, bells rang in underground rooms, and men stared in horror at what certain screens were telling them. Heavy steel doors shut firmly in secret hollow mountains, leaving people on the other side to pound on them and wrestle with fuse boxes which had melted. Bits of desert and tundra slid aside, letting fresh air into air-conditioned tombs, and blunt shapes ground ponderously into position. And while it flowed where it should not, it ebbed from its normal beds. In cities the traffic lights went, and then the street lights, then all the lights. Cooling fans slowed, flickered, and stopped. Heaters faded into darkness. Lifts stuck. Radio stations choked off, their soothing music silenced. It has been said that civilization is 24 hours and two meals away from barbarism. Night was spreading slowly around the spinning earth. It should have been full of pinpricks of light. It was not. There were five billion people down there. What was going to happen soon would make barbarism look like a picnic, hot, nasty, and eventually given over to the ants. Death straightened up. He appeared to be listening intently. It was anyone's guess what he listened with. He is here, he said. The other three looked up. There was a barely perceptible change in the way they stood there. A moment before death had spoken, they, the part of them that did not walk and talk like human beings, had been wrapped around the world. Now they were back. More or less. There was a strangeness about them. It was as if, instead of ill-fitting suits, they now had ill-fitting bodies. Famine looked as though he had been tuned slightly off-station, so that the hitherto dominant signal of a pleasant, thrusting, successful businessman was beginning to be drowned out by the ancient, horrible static of his basic personality. War's skin glistened with sweat. Pollution's skin just glistened. It's all taken care of, said War, speaking with some effort. It'll take its course. It's not just the nuclear, pollution said. It's the chemical. Thousands of gallons of stuff in, in little tanks all over the world. Beautiful liquids with 18 syllables in their names. And the old standbys. Say what you like. Plutonium may give you grief for thousands of years. But arsenic is forever. And then winter said Famine. I like winter. There's something clean about winter. Chickens coming home to roost, said War. No more chickens, said Famine flatly. Only death hadn't changed. Some things don't. The four left the building. It was noticeable that pollution, while still walking, nevertheless gave the impression of oozing. And this was noticed by Anathema and Newton Pulsifer. It had been the first building they'd come to. 
It had seemed much safer inside than out, where there seemed to be a lot of excitement. Anathema had pushed open a door covered in signs that suggested that this would be a terminally dangerous thing to do. It had swung open at her touch. When they'd gone inside, it had shut and locked itself. There hadn't been a lot of time to discuss this after the four had walked in. What were they? said Newt. Some kind of terrorists? In a very nice and accurate sense, said Anathema, I think you're right. What was all that weird talk about? I think possibly the end of the world, said Anathema. Did you see their auras? Well, I don't think so, said Newt. Not nice at all. Oh? Negative auras, in fact. Oh, like black holes. That's bad, is it? Yes. Anathema glared at the rows of metal cabinets. For once, just now, because it wasn't just for play, but was for real, the machinery that was going to bring about the end of the world, or at least that part of it that occupied the layers between about two metres down and all the way to the ozone layer, wasn't operating according to the usual script. There were no big red canisters with flashing lights. There were no coiled wires with a cut-me look about them. No suspiciously large numeric displays were counting down toward a zero that could be averted with seconds to spare. Instead, the metal cabinets looked solid and heavy and very resistant to last-minute heroism. What takes its course? said Anathema. They've done something, haven't they? Perhaps there's an off switch, said Newt helplessly. I'm sure if we looked around... These sort of things are wired in, don't be silly. I thought you knew about this sort of thing. Newt nodded desperately. This was a long way from the pages of easy electronics. For the look of the thing, he peered into the back of one of the cabinets. Worldwide communications, he said indistinctly. You could do practically anything, modulate the mains power, tap into satellites, absolutely anything. You could zip, yuck, you could zap, ouch, make things yuck, uh, just about zap. Ooh. How are you getting on in there? Newt sucked his fingers. So far he hadn't found anything that resembled a transistor. He wrapped his hand in his handkerchief and pulled a couple of boards out of their sockets. Once, one of the electronics magazines to which he subscribed had published a joke circuit which was guaranteed not to work. At last, they'd said, in an amusing way, here's something all you ham-fisted hams out there can build in the certain knowledge that if it does nothing, it's working. It had diodes the wrong way round, transistors upside down, and a flat battery. Newt had built it, and it picked up Radio Musco. He'd written them a letter of complaint, but they never replied. I really don't know if I'm doing any good, he said. James Bond just unscrews things, said Anathema. Not just unscrews, said Newt, his temper fraying. And I'm not <coughs> James Bond. If I was whizzle, the bad guys would have shown me all the Megadeth levers and told me how they bloody well worked, wouldn't they? <coughs> Only it doesn't happen like that in real life. I don't know what's happening, and I can't stop it. Clouds churned around the horizon.
Overhead, the sky was still clear, the air torn by nothing more than a light breeze. But it wasn't normal air. It had a crystallised look to it, so that you might feel that if you turned your head, you might see new facets. It sparkled. If you had to find a word to describe it, the word thronged might slip insidiously into your mind. Thronged with insubstantial beings awaiting only the right moment to become very substantial. Adam glanced up. In one sense, there was just clear air overhead. In another, stretching off to infinity, were the hosts of heaven and hell, wingtip to wingtip. If you looked really closely, and had been specially trained, you could tell the difference. Silence held the bubble of the world in its grip. The door of the building swung open, and the four stepped out. There was no more than a hint of human about three of them now. They seemed to be humanoid shapes made up of all the things they were or represented. They made death seem positively homely. His leather greatcoat and dark-visored helmet had become a cowled robe, but these were mere details. A skeleton, even a walking one, is at least human. Death of a sort lurks inside every living creature. The thing is, said Adam urgently, they're not really real. They're just like nightmares, really. But, but we're not asleep, said Pepper. Dog whined and tried to hide behind Adam. That one looks as if he's melting, said Brian, pointing at the advancing figure, if such it could still be called, of pollution. Well, there you are, then, said Adam encouragingly. It can't be real, can it? It's common sense. Something like that can't be really real. The four halted a few metres away. It has been done, said Death. He leaned forward a little and stared eyelessly at Adam. It was hard to tell if he was surprised. Yes, well, said Adam, the thing is, I don't want it done. I never asked for it to be done. Death looked at the other three and then back to Adam. Behind them a jeep skewed to a halt. They ignored it. I do not understand, he said. Surely your very existence requires the ending of the world. It is written. I don't see why anyone has to go and write things like that, said Adam calmly. The world is full of all sorts of brilliant stuff, and I haven't found out all about it yet. So I don't want anyone messing it about or ending it before I've had a chance to find out about it. So you can all just go away. That's the one, Mr. Shadwell, said Aziraphale, his words trailing into uncertainty even as he uttered them. The one with the T-shirt. Death stared at Adam. You are part of... Us, said War, between teeth like beautiful bullets. It is done. We make the world anew, said Pollution, his voice as insidious as something leaking out of a corroded drum into a water table. You lead us, said Famine. And Adam hesitated. 
Voices inside him still cried out that this was true, and that the world was his as well, and all he had to do was turn and lead them out across a bewildered planet. They were his kind of people. In tears above, the hosts of the sky waited for the word. You cannot want me to shoot him. He's but a bairn. Uh, said Aziraphale. Yeah, yes. Uh, perhaps we'd just better wait a bit. What do you think? What, until he grows up, do you mean? Said Crowley. Dog began to growl. Adam looked at the them. They were his kind of people, too. You just had to decide who your friends really were. He turned back to the four. Get them, said Adam, quietly. The slouch and slur were gone from his voice. It had strange harmonics. No one human could disobey a voice like that. War laughed and looked expectantly at the them. Little boys, she said, playing with your toys. Think of all the toys I can offer you. Think of all the games. I can make you fall in love with me, little boys. Little boys, with your little guns. She laughed again, but the machine gun stutter died away as Pepper stepped forward and raised a trembling arm. It wasn't much of a sword, but it was about the best you could do with two bits of wood and a piece of string. War stared at it. I see, she said. Mano a mano, eh? She drew her own blade and brought it up so that it made a noise like a finger being dragged around a wine glass. There was a flash as they connected. Death stared into Adam's eyes. There was a pathetic jingling noise. Don't touch it, snapped Adam without moving his head. The them stared at the sword rocking to a standstill on the concrete path. Little Boys, muttered Pepper disgustedly. Sooner or later, everyone has to decide which gang they belong to. But, uh, but, said Brian, she sort of got sucked up the sword. The air between Adam and death began to vibrate as in a heat wave. Wensleydale raised his head and looked famine in the sunken eye. He held up something that, with a bit of imagination, could be considered to be a pair of scales made of more string and twigs. Then he whirled it around his head. Famine stuck out a protective arm. There was another flash, and then the jingle of a pair of silver scales bouncing on the ground. Don't touch them, said Adam. Pollution had already started to run or at least to flow quickly, but Brian snatched the circle of grass stalks from his own head and flung it. It shouldn't have handled like one, but a force took it out of his hands, and it whirred like a discus. This time the explosion was a red flame inside a billow of black smoke, and it smelled of oil. With a rolling, tinny little sound, a blackened silver crown bowled out of the smoke, and then spun round with a noise like a settling penny. At least they needed no warning about touching it. It glistened in a way that metal should not. Where'd they go? said Wensley. Where they belong, said Death, still holding Adam's gaze. Where they have always been.
back in the minds of man. He grinned at Adam. There was a tearing sound. Death's robe split and his wings unfolded. Angel's wings, but not of feathers. They were wings of night, wings that were shapes cut through the matter of creation into the darkness underneath, in which a few distant lights glimmered, lights that may have been stars or may have been something entirely else. But I, he said, am not like them. I am Azrael, created to be creation's shadow. You cannot destroy me. That would destroy the world. The heat of their stare faded. Adam scratched his nose. Oh, I don't know, he said. There might be a way. He grinned back. Anyway, it's going to stop now, he said. All this stuff with machines. You've got to do what I say just for now, and I say it's got to stop. Death shrugged. It is stopping already, he said. Without them, he indicated the pathetic remnants of the other three horsepersons, it cannot proceed. Normal entropy triumphs. Death raised a bony hand in what might have been a salute. They'll be back, he said. They're never far away. The wings flapped just once like a thunderclap, and the angel of death vanished. Right then, said Adam, to the empty air. All right, it's not going to happen. All the stuff they started, it must stop now. Newt stared desperately at the equipment racks. You'd think there'd be a manual or something, he said. We could see if Agnes has anything to say, volunteered Anathema. Oh, yes, said Newt bitterly. That makes sense, does it? Sabotaging 20th century electronics with the aid of a 17th century workshop manual? What did Agnes Nutter know of the transistor? Well, my grandfather interpreted prediction 3328 rather neatly in 1948 and made some very shrewd investments, said Anathema. She didn't know what it was going to be called, of course, and she wasn't very sound about electricity in general, but I was speaking rhetorically. You don't have to make it work anyway. You have to stop it working. You don't need knowledge for that. You need ignorance. Newt groaned. All right, he said wearily. Let's try it. Give me a prediction. Anathema pulled out a card at random. He is not that which he says he is, she read. It's number 1002. Very simple. Any ideas? Well, um, look, said Newt wretchedly. This isn't really the time to say it, but, um, he swallowed. Actually, I'm not very good with electronics. Not very good at all. You said you were a computer engineer, I seem to remember. Well, that was an exaggeration. I mean, just about as much of an exaggeration as you can possibly get, in fact, really. I suppose it was more what you might call an overstatement. I might go so far as to say that what it really was, Newt closed his eyes, was a prevarication. A lie, you mean, said Anathema, sweetly. Oh, I wouldn't go that far, said Newt. Although, he added, I'm not actually a computer engineer at all. Quite the opposite. What's the opposite? If you must know, every time I try and make anything electronic work, it stops. 
Anathema gave him a bright little smile and posed theatrically, like that moment in every conjurer's stage act when the lady in the sequins steps back to reveal the trick. Tra-la, she said. Repair it, she said. What? Make it work better, she said. I, I don't know, said Newt. I'm not sure I can. He laid a hand on top of the nearest cabinet. There was the noise of something he hadn't realised he'd been hearing suddenly stopping, and the descending whine of a distant generator. The lights on the panels flickered, and most of them went out. All over the world, people who had been wrestling with switches found that they switched. Circuit breakers opened. Computers stopped planning World War Three and went back to idly scanning the stratosphere. In bunkers under Norvia Zemla, men found that the fuses they were frantically trying to pull out came away in their hands at last. In bunkers under Wyoming and Nebraska, men in fatigues stopped screaming and waving guns at one another and would have had a beer if alcohol had been allowed in missile bases. It wasn't, but they had one anyway. The lights came on. Civilization stopped its slide into chaos and started writing letters to the newspapers about how people got overexcited about the least little thing these days. In Tadfield, the machines ceased radiating menace. Something that had been in them was gone, quite apart from the electricity. Gosh, said Newt. There you are, said Anathema. You fixed it good. You can trust old Agnes, take it from me. Now let's get out of here. He didn't want to do it, said Aziraphale. Haven't I always told you, Crowley? If you take the trouble to look deep down inside anyone, you'll find that at bottom they're really quite... It's not over, said Crowley flatly. Adam turned and appeared to notice them for the first time. Crowley was not used to people identifying him so readily, but Adam stared at him as though Crowley's entire life history was pasted inside the back of his skull, and he, Adam, was reading it. For an instant, he knew real terror. He'd always thought the sort he'd felt before was the genuine article, but that was mere abject fear beside this new sensation. Those below could make you cease to exist by, well, hurting you in unbearable amounts. But this boy could not only make you cease to exist merely by thinking about it, but probably could arrange matters so that you never had existed at all. Adam's gaze swept to a zero fail. Excuse me, why are you two people? said Adam. Well, said a zero fail. It's a long, it's not right being two people, said Adam. I reckon you'd better go back to being two separate people. There were no showy special effects. There was just a zero fail sitting next to Madame Tracy. Oh, that felt tingly, she said. She looked a zero fail up and down. Oh, she said in a slightly disappointed voice. Somehow I thought you'd be younger. Shadwell glowered jealously at the angel and thumbed the thunder-gun's hammer in a pointed sort of way. Aziraphale looked down at his new body, which was, unfortunately, very much like his old body, although the overcoat was cleaner. 
Well, that's over, he said. No, said Crowley. No, it isn't, you see. Not at all. Now there were clouds overhead curling like a pot of tagliatelle on full boil. You see, said Crowley, his voice leaden with fatalistic gloom, it doesn't really work that simply. You think wars get started because some old duke gets shot or someone cuts off someone's ear or someone sighted their missiles in the wrong place. It's not like that. That's just, well, just reasons which haven't got anything to do with it. What really causes wars is two sides that can't stand the sight of one another and the pressure builds up and up and then anything will cause it, anything at all. What's your name, um, boy? That's Adam Young, said Anathema, as she strode up with Newt trailing after her. Yeah, that's right, Adam Young, said Adam. Yeah, good effort, you've saved the world. Have a half holiday, said Crowley. But it won't really make any difference. I think you're right, said Aziraphale. I'm sure my people want Armageddon. It's very sad. Would anyone mind telling us what's going on, said Anathema sternly, folding her arms. Aziraphale shrugged. It's a very long story, he began. Anathema stuck out her chin. Go on, then, she said. Well, in the beginning, the lightning flashed, struck the ground a few metres from Adam, and stayed there, a sizzling column that broadened at the base, as though the wild electricity was filling an invisible mould. The humans pressed back against the jeep. The lightning vanished, and a young man made out of golden fire stood there. Oh, dear, said Aziraphale. It's him. Him who? said Crowley. The voice of God, said the angel, the Metatron. The them stared. Then Pepper said, No, it isn't. The Metatron's made of plastic, and it's got laser cannon, and it can turn into a helicopter. That's the cosmic Megatron, said Wensleydale, weakly. I had one, but the head fell off. I think this one is different. The beautiful blank gaze fell on Adam Young, and then turned sharply to look at the concrete beside it, which was boiling. A figure rose from the churning ground in the manner of the demon king in a pantomime. But if this one was ever in a pantomime, it was one where no one walked out alive and they had to get a priest to burn the place down afterwards. It was not greatly different to the other figure, except that its flames were blood-red. Uh, said Crowley, trying to shrink into his seat. Hi. Um. The red thing gave him the briefest of glances, as though marking him for future consumption, and then stared at Adam. When it spoke, its voice was like a million flies taking off in a hurry. It buzzed a word that felt to those humans who heard it like a file dragged down the spine. It was talking to Adam, who said, uh -huh. uh, No, no, I said already my name's Adam Young. He looked the figure up and down. Uh, what's yours? Beelzebub, Crowley supplied. He's the Lord of... Thank you, Crowley said Beelzebub. Later we must have a serious talk. I'm sure thou hast much to tell me. Um, said Crowley. Well, you see, what happened was silence. 
Oh, right, right, said Crowley hurriedly. Now then, Adam Young, said the Metatron, while we can, of course, appreciate your assistance at this point, we must add that Armageddon should take place now. There may be some temporary inconvenience, but that should hardly stand in the way of the ultimate good. Ah, whispered Crowley to Aziraphale, what he means is, we have to destroy the world in order to save it. As to what it stands in the way of, that has yet to be decided, buzzed Beelzebub. But it must be decided now, boy. That is thy destiny. It is written. Adam took a deep breath. The human watchers held theirs. Crowley and Aziraphale had forgotten to breathe some time ago. I just don't see why everyone and everything has to be burned up and everything, Adam said. Millions of fish and whales and trees and, and sheep and stuff, and not even for anything important, just to see who's got the best gang. It's like us and the Johnsonites, but even if you win, you can't really beat the other side because you don't really want to. I mean, not for good. You'll just start all over again. You just keep on sending people like these two he pointed to Crowley and Aziraphale, to mess people around. It's hard enough being people as it is, without other people coming and messing you around. Crowley turned to Aziraphale. Johnsonites, he whispered. The angel shrugged. Early breakaway sect, I think, he said. Sort of Gnostics, like the Ophites. His forehead wrinkled. Or were they the Sethites? No, I'm thinking of the Colliridians, oh dear. I'm sorry, there were hundreds of them. It's so hard to keep track. People being messed around, murmured Crowley. It doesn't matter, snapped the Metatron. The whole point of the creation of the Earth and good and evil? I don't see what's so terrific about creating people as people and then getting upset because they act like people, said Adam severely. Anyway, if you stop telling people it's all sorted out after they're dead, they might try sorting it out while they're alive. If I was in charge, I'd try making people live a lot longer, like old Methuselah. It'd be a lot more interesting, and they might start thinking about the sort of things they're doing to all the environment and ecology, because they'll still be around in a hundred years' time. Yeah, said Beelzebub, and he actually began to smile. You wish to rule the world? That's more like thy father. I thought about all that, and I don't want to, said Adam, half turning and nodding encouragingly at the them. I mean, there's some stuff could do with altering, but then I expect people would keep coming up to me and getting me to sort out everything the whole time, and get rid of all the rubbish and make more trees for them. And where's the good in all that? It's like having to tidy up people's bedrooms for them. You never tidy up even your bedroom, said Pepper behind him. I never said anything about my bedroom, said Adam, referring to a room whose carpet had been lost to view for several years. It's general bedrooms, I mean. I didn't mean my personal bedroom. It's an analogy. That's just what I'm saying. Beelzebub and the Metatron looked at one another. Anyway, said Adam, it's bad enough having to think of things for Pepper and Winsley and Brian to do all the time so they don't get bored. So I don't want any more world than I've got. Thank you all the same. The Metatron's face began to take on the look familiar to all those subjected to Adam's idiosyncratic line of reasoning. You can't refuse to be who you are, it said eventually. 
Listen, your birth and destiny are part of the great plan. Things have to happen like this. All the choices have been made. Rebellion is a fine thing, said Beelzebub, but some things are beyond rebellion. You must understand. I'm not rebelling against anything, said Adam in a reasonable tone of voice. I'm pointing out things. Seems to me you can't blame people for pointing out things. Seems to me it'd be a lot better not to start fighting and just see what people do. If you stop messing them about, they might start thinking properly, and they might stop messing the world around. I'm not saying they would, he added conscientiously, but they might. This makes no sense, said the Metatron. You can't run counter to the great plan. You must think. It's in your genes. Think. Adam hesitated. The dark undercurrent was always ready to flow back, its reedy whisper saying, Yes, that was it. That was what it was all about. You have to follow the plan because you were part of it. It had been a long day. He was tired. Saving the world took it out of an eleven-year-old body. Crowley stuck his head in his hands. For a moment there, just for a moment, I thought we had a chance, he said. He had them worried. Oh, well, it was nice Well, He was aware that Aziraphale had stood up. Excuse me, said the angel. The trio looked at him. This great plan, he said, this would be the ineffable plan, would it? There was a moment's silence. It's the great plan, said the Metatron flatly. You are well aware. There shall be a world lasting six thousand years, and it will conclude with... Yes, yes, that's the great plan, all right, said Aziraphale. He spoke politely and respectfully, but with the air of one who has just asked an unwelcome question at a political meeting and won't go away until he gets an answer. I was just asking if it's ineffable as well. I just want to be clear on this point. It doesn't matter, snapped the Metatron. It's the same thing, surely. Surely, thought Crowley, they don't actually know. He started to grin like an idiot. So you're not one hundred percent clear on this, said Aziraphale. It's not given to us to understand the ineffable plan, said the Metatron. But of course, the great plan... But the great plan can only be a tiny part of the overall ineffability, said Crowley. You can't be certain that what's happening right now isn't exactly right from an ineffable point of view. It is written, bellowed Beelzebub. But it might be written differently somewhere else, said Crowley, where you can't read it. In bigger letters, said Aziraphale, underlined, Crowley added. Twice, suggested Aziraphale. Perhaps this isn't just a test of the world, said Crowley. It might be a test of you people, too, hmm? God does not play games with his loyal servants, said the Metatron, but in a worried tone of voice. Woo-hee, said Crowley. Where have you been? Everyone found their eyes turning toward Adam. He seemed to be thinking very carefully. Then he said, I don't see why it matters what is written. Not when it's about people. It can always be crossed out. 
A breeze swept across the airfield. Overhead, the assembled hosts rippled like a mirage. There was the kind of silence there might have been on the day before creation. Adam stood smiling at the two of them, a small figure perfectly poised exactly between heaven and hell. Crowley grabbed Aziraphale's arm. You know what happened? He hissed excitedly. He was left alone. He grew up human. He's not evil incarnate or good incarnate. He's just a human incarnate. Then, I think, said the Metatron, that I shall need to seek further instructions. I also, said Beelzebub. His raging face turned to Crowley. And I shall report of your part in this, thou hast better believe it. He glared at Adam. And I do not know what thy father will say. There was a thundering explosion. Shadwell, who had been fidgeting with horrified excitement for some minutes, had finally got enough control of his trembling fingers to pull the trigger. The pellets passed through the space where Beelzebub had been. Shadwell never knew how lucky he had been that he'd missed. The sky wavered, and then became just sky. Around the horizon, the clouds began to unravel. Madame Tracy broke the silence. Weren't they odd? she said. She didn't mean, weren't they odd. What she did mean, she probably could never hope to express, except by screaming. But the human brain has amazing recuperative powers, and saying, weren't they odd, was part of the rapid healing process. Within half an hour, she'd be thinking she'd just had too much to drink. Is it over, do you think? said Aziraphale. Crowley shrugged. Not for us, I'm afraid. I don't think you need to go worrying, said Adam gnomically. I know all about you two. Don't you worry. He looked at the rest of the them, who tried not to back away. He seemed to think for a while. And then, he said, There's been too much messing around anyway. But it seems to me everyone's going to be a lot happier if they forget about this. Not actually forget, just not remember exactly. And then we can go home. But you can't just leave it at that, said Anathema, pushing forward. Think of all the things you could do. Good things. Like what? said Adam suspiciously. Well, you could bring all the whales back to start with. He put his head on one side. And that'd stop people killing them, would it? She hesitated. It would have been nice to say yes. And if people do start killing them, what would you ask me to do about them? said Adam. No, I reckon I'm getting the hang of this now. Once I start messing around like that, there'll be no stopping it. Seems to me the only sensible thing is for people to know if they kill a whale, they've got a dead whale. That shows a very responsible attitude, said Newt. Adam raised an eyebrow. It's just sense, he said. Aziraphale patted Crowley on the back. We seem to have survived, he said. Just imagine how terrible it might have been if we'd been at all competent. Who? Oh, said Crowley. Is your car operational? I think it might need a bit of work, Crowley admitted. I was thinking that we might take these good people into town, said Aziraphale. I owe Madame Tracy a meal, I'm sure, and her young man, of course. 
Shadwell looked over his shoulder, and then up at Madame Tracy. Who's he talking about? he asked her triumphant expression. Adam rejoined the them. I reckon we'll just be getting home, he said. But what actually happened? said Pepper. I mean, there was all this... It doesn't matter any more, said Adam. But you could help so much, Anathema began as they wandered back to their bikes. Newt took her gently by the arm. That's not a good idea, he said. Tomorrow is the first day of the rest of our lives. Do you know, she said, of all the trite sayings I've ever really hated, that comes top. Amazing, isn't it? said Newt happily. Why have you got Dick Turpin painted on the door of your car? It's a joke, really, said Newt. Hmm? Because everywhere I go, I hold up traffic, he mumbled wretchedly. Crowley looked glumly at the controls of the jeep. I'm sorry about the car, Aziraphale was saying. I know how much you liked it. Perhaps if you concentrated really hard, it wouldn't be the same, said Crowley. I suppose not. I had it from new, you know. It wasn't a car, it was more a sort of whole body glove. He sniffed. What's burning? he said. A breeze swept up the dust and dropped it again. The air became hot and heavy, imprisoning those within it like flies in syrup. He turned his head and looked into Aziraphale's horrified expression. But it's over, he said. It can't happen now. The, the thing, the correct moment or whatever, it's gone past, it's over. The ground began to shake. The noise was like a subway train, but not one passing under. It was more like the sound of one coming up. Crowley fumbled madly with the gear shift. That's not Beelzebub, he shouted above the noise of the wind. That's him, his father. This isn't Armageddon, this is personal. Start, you bloody thing. The ground moved under Anathema and Newt, flinging them onto the dancing concrete. Yellow smoke gushed from between the cracks. It feels like a volcano, shouted Newt. What is it? Whatever it is, it's pretty angry, said Anathema. In the jeep, Crowley was cursing. Aziraphale laid a hand on his shoulder. There are humans here, he said. Yes, said Crowley, and me. I mean, we shouldn't let this happen to them. Well, what... Crowley began and stopped. I mean, when you think about it, we've got them into enough trouble as it is, you and me, over the years, what with one thing and another. We were only doing our jobs, muttered Crowley. Yes, so what? Lots of people in history have only done their jobs and look at the trouble they caused. Well, you don't mean we should actually try to stop him. What have you got to lose? Crowley started to argue and realised that he hadn't anything. There was nothing he could lose that he hadn't lost already. They couldn't do anything worse to him than he had coming to him already. He felt free at last. He also felt under the seat and found a tire iron. It wouldn't be any good, but then nothing would. In fact, it'd be much more terrible facing the adversary with anything like a decent weapon. That way, you might have a bit of hope which would make it worse. Aziraphale picked up the sword lately dropped by war and hefted its weight thoughtfully. Gosh, it's been years since I used this, he murmured. About six thousand, said Crowley. 
My word, yes, said the angel. What a day that was, and no mistake. Good old days. Not really, said Crowley. The noise was growing. People knew the difference between right and wrong in those days, said Aziraphale dreamily. Well, yes, think about it. Ah, yes. Too much missing about? Yes. Aziraphale held up the sword. There was a whoof as it suddenly flamed like a bar of magnesium. Once you've learned how to do it, you never forget, he said. He smiled at Crowley. I'd just like to say, he said, if we don't get out of this, that I'll have known deep down inside that there was a spark of goodness in you. Yeah, that's right, said Crowley bitterly. Make my day. Aziraphale held out his hand. Nice knowing you, he said. Crowley took it. Here's to the next time, he said. Oh, and um, Aziraphale? Yes? Just remember, I'll have known that deep down inside, you were just enough of a bastard to be worth liking. There was a scuffling noise, and they were pushed aside by the small but dynamic shape of Shadwell, waving the thunder gun purposefully. I wouldn't have trust you two southern Nancy boys to kill a lame rat in a barrel, he said. Who are we fighting now? The devil, said Aziraphale, simply. Shadwell nodded, as if this hadn't come as a surprise, threw the gun down, and took off his hat to expose a forehead known and feared wherever street-fighting men were gathered together. I reckon so, he said. In that case, I'm going to use my head. Newt and Anathema watched the three of them walk unsteadily away from the jeep. With Shadwell in the middle, they looked like a stylized W. What on earth are they going to do? said Newt. And what's happening? What's happening to them? The coats of Aziraphale and Crowley split along the seams. If you were going to go, you might as well go in your own true shape. Feathers unfolded towards the sky. Contrary to popular belief, the wings of demons are the same as the wings of angels, although they're often better groomed. Shadwell shouldn't be going with them said Newt, staggering to his feet. What's a Shadwell? He's my sergeant. Well, he's this amazing old man. You'd never believe it. I've got to help him. Help him? said Anathema. Well, I took an oath and everything. Newt hesitated. Well, sort of an oath. And he gave me a month's wages in advance. Who are those other two, then? Friends of yours? Anathema began and stopped. Aziraphale had half-turned and the profile had finally clicked into place. I know where I've seen him before, she shouted, pulling herself upright against Newt as the ground bounced up and down. Come on, but something dreadful is going to happen. If he's damaged the book, you're bloody well right. Newt fumbled in his lapel and found his official pin. He didn't know what they were going up against this time, but a pin was all he had. They ran. Adam looked around. He looked down. His face took on an expression of calculated innocence. There was a moment of conflict, but Adam was on his own ground, always and ultimately on his own ground. He moved one hand around in a blurred half-circle. Aziraphale and Crowley 
felt the world change. There was no noise. There were no cracks. There was just that where there had been the beginnings of a volcano of satanic power, there was just clearing smoke and a car drawing slowly to a halt, its engine loud in the evening hush. It was an elderly car, but well-preserved. Not using Crowley's method, though, where dents were simply wished away. This car looked like it did, you knew instinctively, because its owner had spent every weekend for two decades doing all the things the manual said should be done every weekend. Before every journey, he walked around it and checked the lights and counted the wheels. Serious-minded men who smoked pipes and wore moustaches had written serious instructions saying that this should be done, and so he did it, because he was a serious-minded man who smoked a pipe and wore a moustache, and did not take such injunctions lightly. Because if you did, where would you be? He had exactly the right amount of insurance. He drove three miles below the speed limit, or forty miles per hour, whichever was the lower. He wore a tie, even on Saturdays. Archimedes said that, with a long enough lever and a solid enough place to stand, he could move the world. He could have stood on Mr. Young. The car door opened, and Mr. Young emerged. "'What's going on here?' he said. "'Adam?' "'Adam!' But the them were streaking towards the gate. Mr. Young looked at the shocked assembly. At least Crowley and Aziraphale had had enough self-control left to winch in their wings. "'What's he been getting up to now?' he sighed, not really expecting an answer. "'Where's that boy got to? Adam! Come back here this instant!' Adam seldom did what his father wanted. Sergeant Thomas A. Deisenberger opened his eyes. The only thing strange about his surroundings was how familiar they were. There was his high school photograph on the wall, and his little Stars and Stripes flag in the tooth mug next to his toothbrush, and even his little teddy bear still in its little uniform. The early afternoon sun flooded through his bedroom window. He could smell apple pie. That was one of the things he'd missed most about spending his Saturday nights a long way from home. He walked downstairs. His mother was at the stove, taking a huge apple pie out of the oven to cool. Hi, Tommy, she said. I thought you was in England. Yes, Mom. I am normatively in England, Mom, protecting democratism, Mom, sir, said Sergeant Thomas A. Dysenberger. That's nice, hon, said his mother. Your papa's down in the big field with Chester and Ted. They'll be pleased to see you. Sergeant Thomas A. Dysenberger nodded. He took off his military-issue helmet and his military-issue jacket, and he rolled up his military-issue shirt sleeves. For a moment he looked more thoughtful than he had ever done in his life. Part of his thoughts were occupied with apple pie. Mom! If any throughput eventuates premising to interface with Sergeant Thomas A. Deisenberger telephonically, Mom, sir, this individual will be... Sorry, Tommy? Tom Deisenberger hung his gun on the wall above his father's battered old rifle. I said, if anyone calls, Mom, I'll be down in the big field with Pop and Chester and Ted.
The van drove slowly up to the gates of the airbase. It pulled over. The guard on the midnight shift looked in the window, checked the credentials of the driver, and waved him in. The van meandered across the concrete. It parked on the tarmac of the empty airstrip, near where two men sat sharing a bottle of wine. One of the men wore dark glasses. Surprisingly, no one else seemed to be paying them the slightest attention. Are you saying, said Crowley, that he planned it this way all along, from the very beginning? Aziraphale conscientiously wiped the top of the bottle and passed it back. Could have, he said, could have. One could always ask him, I suppose. From what I remember, replied Crowley thoughtfully, and we were never actually on what you might call speaking terms, he wasn't exactly one for a straight answer. In fact, in fact, he'd never answer at all. He'd just smile as if he knew something that you didn't. And of course that's true, said the angel. Otherwise, what'd be the point? There was a pause, and both beings stared reflectively off into the distance, as if they were remembering things that neither of them had thought of for a long time. The van driver got out of the van, carrying a cardboard box and a pair of tongs. Lying on the tarmac were a tarnished metal crown and a pair of scales. The man picked them up with the tongs and placed them in the box. Then he approached the couple with the bottle. Excuse me, gents, he said, but there's meant to be a sword around here somewhere as well. At least that's what it says here at any rate, and I was wondering. Aziraphale seemed embarrassed. He looked around himself, vaguely puzzled, then stood up to discover that he'd been sitting on the sword for the last hour or so. He reached down and picked it up. Sorry, he said, and put the sword into the box. The van driver, who wore an International Express cap, said not to mention it, and really it was a godsend them both being there like this, since someone was going to have to sign to say that he'd duly collected what he'd been sent for, and this had certainly been a day to remember, eh? Aziraphale and Crowley both agreed with him that it had, and Aziraphale signed the clipboard that the van driver gave him, witnessing that a crown, a pair of balances, and a sword had been received in good order and were to be delivered to a smudged address and charged to a blurred account number. The man began to walk back to his van. Then he stopped and turned. If I was to tell my wife what happened to me today, he told them, a little sadly, she'd never believe me, and I wouldn't blame her because I don't either and he climbed into his van, and he drove away. Crowley stood up a little unsteadily. He reached a hand down to Aziraphale. Come on, he said. I'll drive us back to London. He took a jeep. No one stopped them. It had a cassette player. This isn't general issue even for American military vehicles, but Crowley automatically assumed that all vehicles he drove would have cassette players and therefore this one did within seconds of his getting in. The cassette that he put on as he drove was marked Handel's Water Music, and it stayed Handel's Water Music all the way home.
Sunday, the first day of the rest of their lives. At around half-past ten, the paper boy brought the Sunday papers to the front door of Jasmine Cottage. He had to make three trips. The series of thumps as they hit the mat woke up Newton Pulsifer. He left Anathema asleep. She was pretty shattered, poor thing. She'd been almost incoherent when he'd put her to bed. She'd run her life according to the prophecies, and now there were no more prophecies. She must be feeling like a train which had reached the end of the line, but still had to keep going somehow. From now on, she'd be able to go through life with everything coming as a surprise, just like everyone else. What luck! The telephone rang. Newt dashed for the kitchen and picked up the receiver on the second ring. Hello, he said. A voice of forced friendliness, tinted with desperation, gabbled at him. No, he said. I'm not. And it's not Devisi, it's device, as in nice. And she's asleep. Well, he said, I'm pretty sure she doesn't want any cavities insulated or double glazing. I mean, she doesn't own the cottage, you know, she's only renting it. No, I'm not going to wake her up and ask her, he said. And tell me, Miss, um, right, Miss Morrow, why don't you lot take Sundays off like everybody else does? Sunday, he said. Of course it's not Saturday. Why should it be Saturday? Saturday was yesterday. It's honestly Sunday today, really. What do you mean you've lost a day? Oh, I haven't got it. Seems to me you've got a bit carried away with selling. Uh, hello? He growled and replaced the receiver. Telephone salespeople. Something dreadful ought to happen to them. He was assailed by a moment of sudden doubt. Today was Sunday, wasn't it? A glance at the Sunday papers reassured him. If the Sunday Times said it was Sunday, you could be sure that they'd investigated the matter. And yesterday was Saturday, of course. Yesterday was Saturday, and he'd never forget Saturday for as long as he lived. If only he could remember what it was he wasn't meant to forget. Seeing that he was in the kitchen, Newt decided to make breakfast. He moved around the kitchen as quietly as possible to avoid waking the rest of the household and found every sound magnified. The antique fridge had a door that shut like the crack of doom. The kitchen tap dribbled like a diuretic gerbil but made a noise like Old Faithful and he couldn't find where anything was. In the end, as every human being who has ever breakfasted on their own in someone else's kitchen has done since nearly the dawn of time, he may do with unsweetened instant black coffee. Footnote. Except for Giovanni Jacopo Casanova, 1725-1798, famed amorist and litterateur, who revealed in Volume 12 of his memoirs that, as a matter of course, he carried around with him at all times a small valise containing a loaf of bread, a pot of choice Seville marmalade, a knife, fork and small spoon for stirring, two fresh eggs packed with care in unspun wool, a tomato or love apple, a small frying pan, a small saucepan, a spirit burner, a chafing dish, a tin box of salted butter of the Italian type, two bone china plates, also a portion of honeycomb as a sweetener for my breath and for my coffee. Let my readers understand me when I say to them all, 
A true gentleman should always be able to break his fast in the manner of a gentleman, wheresoever he may find himself. On the kitchen table was a roughly rectangular leather-bound cinder. He could just make out the words N-I-E and A-C-C on the charred cover. What a difference a day made, he thought. It turns you from the ultimate reference book to a mere barbecue briquette. Now, then, how exactly had they got it? He recalled a man who smelled of smoke and wore sunglasses, even in darkness. And there was other stuff all running together, boys on bikes, an unpleasant buzzing, a small, grubby, staring face. It all hung around in his mind, not exactly forgotten, but forever hanging on the cusp of recollection, a memory of things that hadn't happened. Footnote. And there was the matter of Dick Turpin. It looked like the same car, except that forever afterwards it seemed able to do 250 miles on a gallon of petrol, ran so quietly that you practically had to put your mouth over the exhaust pipe to see if the engine was firing, and issued its voice-synthesized warnings in a series of exquisite and perfectly phrased haikus, each one original and apt. Late frost burns the bloom. Would a fool not let the belt restrain the body? It would say. And the cherry blossom tumbles from the highest tree. One needs more petrol. A memory of things that hadn't happened. How could you have that? He sat staring at the wall until a knock at the door brought him back to earth. There was a small, dapper man in a black raincoat standing on the doorstep. He was holding a cardboard box, and he gave Newt a bright smile. Mister, he consulted a piece of paper in one hand. Palsifer? Palsifer, said Newt. It's a hard S. I I'm ever so sorry, said the man. I've only ever seen it written down. Um, well then... It would appear that this is for you and Mrs. Pulsifer. Newt gave him a blank look. There is no Mrs. Pulsifer, he said coldly. The man removed his bowler hat. Oh, I'm terribly sorry, he said. I, I mean that, well, there's my mother, said Newt, but she's not dead, she's just in Dorking. I'm not married. How odd. The letter is quite uh, specific. Who are you, said Newt. He was wearing only his trousers, and it was chilly on the doorstep. The man balanced the box awkwardly and fished out a card from an inner pocket. He handed it to Newt. Giles Baddicombe, Roby Roby Redfern and Bychance Solicitors, 13 Demdike Chambers, Preston. Uh, yes, he said politely. And um, what can I do for you, Mr. Baddicombe? You could let me in, said Mr. Baddicombe. You're not serving a writ or anything, are you? said Newt. The events of last night hung in his memory like a cloud, constantly changing whenever he thought he could make out a picture. But he was vaguely aware of damaging things, and had been expecting retribution in some form. No, said Mr. Baddicombe, looking slightly hurt. We have people for that sort of thing. He wandered past Newt and put the box down on the table. To be honest... He said, we're all very interested in this. Mr. Bychance nearly came down himself, but he doesn't travel well these days. Look, said Newt, I really haven't the faintest idea what you're talking about. 
"'This,' said Mr. Baddicombe, proffering the box, "'and beaming like a Xerophale about to attempt a conjuring trick, "'is yours. Someone wanted you to have it. They were very specific.' "'A present,' said Newt. "'He eyed the taped cardboard cautiously, "'and then rummaged in the kitchen drawer for a sharp knife.' I think more a bequest, said Mr. Baddicombe. You see, we've had it for three hundred years. Oh, sorry, was it something I said? Hold it under the tap, I should. What the hell is this all about? said Newt, but a certain icy suspicion was creeping over him. He sucked at the cut. It's a funny story. Do you mind if I sit down? And, of course, I don't know the full details, because I joined the firm only fifteen years ago, but... It had been a very small legal firm when the box had been cautiously delivered. Redfern by chance and both the Robies, let alone Mr. Baddicombe, were a long way in the future. The struggling legal clerk who'd accepted delivery had been surprised to find, tied to the top of the box with twine, a letter addressed to himself. It had contained certain instructions and five interesting facts about the history of the next ten years, which, if put to good use by a keen young man, would ensure enough finance to pursue a very successful legal career. All he had to do was see that the box was carefully looked after for rather more than three hundred years, and then delivered to a certain address. Although, of course, the firm had changed hands many times over the centuries, said Mr. Baddicombe. But the box has always been part of the chattels, as it were. I didn't even know they made Heinz baby foods in the 17th century, said Newt. Oh, that was just to keep it undamaged in the car, said Mr. Baddicombe. And no one's opened it all these years, said Newt. Twice, I believe, said Mr. Baddicombe. In 1757 by Mr. George Cranby, and in 1928 by Mr. Arthur Bychance, father of the present Mr. Bychance. He coughed. Apparently, Mr. Cranby found a letter addressed to himself, said Newt. Mr. Baddicombe sat back hurriedly. My word, how did you guess that? I think I recognize the style, said Newt grimly. What happened to them? Have you heard this before? said Mr. Baddicombe suspiciously. Not in so many words. They weren't blown up, were they? Well, Mr. Cranby had a heart attack, it is believed. And Mr. Bychance went very pale, and put his letter back in its envelope, I understand, and gave very strict instructions that the box wasn't to be opened again in his lifetime. He said anyone who opened the box would be sacked without references. A dire threat, said Newt, sarcastically. Oh, it was, in 1928. Anyway, their letters are in the box. Newt pulled the cardboard aside. There was a small, iron-bound chest inside. It had no lock. Go on, lift it out, said Mr. Baddicombe excitedly. I must say I'd very much like to know what's in there. We've had bets on it in the office. I'll tell you what, said Newt, generously. I'll make us some coffee, and you can open the box. Me? Would that be proper? I don't see why not. Newt eyed the saucepans hanging over the stove. One of them was big enough for what he had in mind. Go on, he said. Be a devil. I don't mind. You, you could have power of attorney or something. Mr. Baddicombe took off his overcoat. Well, he said, rubbing his hands together, since you put it like that, 
It'll be something to tell my grandchildren. Newt picked up the saucepan and laid his hand gently on the door handle. I hope so, he said. Here goes. Newt heard a faint creak. What can you see? he said. There's the two opened letters. Oh, and a third one. Addressed to... Newt heard the snap of a wax seal and the clink of something on the table. Then there was a gasp, the clatter of a chair, the sound of running feet in the hallway, the slam of a door, and the sound of a car engine being jerked into life, and then redlined down the lane. Newt took the saucepan off his head and came out from behind the door. He picked up the letter and was not 100% surprised to see that it was addressed to Mr. G. Badicombe. He unfolded it. It read, Here is a florin lawyer. Now run fast, lest the world know the truth about yo and Mistress Spidden, the typewriting machine slavey. Newt looked at the other letters. The crackling paper of the one addressed to George Cranby said, Remove thy thieving hand, Master Cranby. I mind well how yo swindled the widow Plashkin this Michaelmas past, yo skinny old snatch pastry. Newt wondered what a snatch pastry was. He would be prepared to bet that it didn't involve cookery. The one that had awaited the inquisitive Mr. Bychance said, Yo left them, yo coward. Return this letter to the box, lest the world know the true events of June 7th, 1916. Under the letters was a manuscript. Newt stared at it. What's that? said Anathema. He spun around. She was leaning against the doorframe like an attractive yawn on legs. Newt backed against the table. Oh, uh, nothing. Wrong address. Nothing. Just some old box. Junk mail. You know how... On a Sunday, she said, pushing him aside. He shrugged as she put her hands around the yellowed manuscript and lifted it out. Further, nice and accurate prophecies of Agnes Nutter, she read slowly, concerning the world that is to come. Ye saga continues. Oh, my. She laid it reverentially on the table and prepared to turn the first page. Newt's hand landed gently on hers. Think of it like this, he said quietly. Do you want to be a descendant for the rest of your life? She looked up. Their eyes met. It was Sunday, the first day of the rest of the world, around 11.30. St. James's Park was comparatively quiet. The Ducks, who were experts in real politique as seen from the bread end, put it down to a decrease in world tension. There really had been a decrease in world tension, in fact, but a lot of people were in offices trying to find out why trying to find where Atlantis had disappeared to with three international fact-finding delegations on it, and trying to work out what had happened to all their computers yesterday. The park was deserted, except for a member of MI9 trying to recruit someone who, to their later mutual embarrassment, would turn out to be also a member of MI9, and a tall man feeding the ducks. And there were also Crowley and Aziraphale.
They strolled side by side across the grass. Same here, said Aziraphale. The shop's all there, not so much as a soot mark. I mean, you can't just make an old Bentley, said Crowley. You can't get the patina. But there it was, large as life, right there, in the street. You can't tell the difference. Well, I can tell the difference, said Aziraphale. I'm sure it didn't stock books with titles like Biggles Goes to Mars and Jack Cade Frontier Hero and 101 Things a Boy Can Do and Blood Dogs of the Skull Sea. Gosh, I'm sorry, said Crowley, who knew how much the angel had treasured his book collection. Oh, don't be, said Aziraphale, happily. They're all mint first editions, and I looked them up in Skindle's price guide. I think the phrase you use is woo-hee. I thought he was putting the world back just as it was, said Crowley. Well, yes, said Aziraphale, more or less, as best he can. But he's got a sense of humour, too. Crowley gave him a sideways look. Your people been in touch, he said. No. Yours? No. I think they're pretending it didn't happen. Mine, too, I suppose. Well, that's bureaucracy for you. And I think mine are waiting to see what happens next, said Aziraphale. Crowley nodded. A breathing space, he said. A chance to morally rearm, get the defences up, ready for the big one. They stood by the pond watching the ducks scrabble for the bread. Sorry, said Aziraphale. I thought that was the big one. I'm not sure, said Crowley. Well, think about it. For my money, the really big one will be all of us against all of them. What? You mean heaven and hell against humanity? Crowley shrugged. Well, of course, if he did change everything, then maybe he changed himself, too. Got rid of his powers, perhaps. Decided to stay human. Oh, I do hope so, said Aziraphale. Anyway, I'm sure the alternative wouldn't be allowed. Uh, would it? I don't know. You can never be certain about what's really intended. Plans within plans. Sorry? said Aziraphale. Well, said Crowley, who'd been thinking about this until his head ached. Haven't you ever wondered about it all? You know, your people and my people, heaven and hell, good and evil, all that sort of thing. I mean, why? As I recall, said the angel, stiffly, there was the rebellion and, ah, yes, and why did it happen, eh? I mean, it didn't have to, did it? said Crowley, a manic look in his eye. Anyone who could build a universe in six days isn't going to let a little thing like that happen. Unless they want it to, of course. Oh, come on, be sensible, said Aziraphale, doubtfully. That's not good advice, said Crowley. That's not good advice at all. If you sit down and think about it sensibly, you come up with some very funny ideas, like why make people inquisitive and then put some forbidden fruit where they can see it with a big neon finger flashing on and off, saying, this is it. I don't remember any neon. Now, metaphorically, I mean. I mean, why do that if you really don't want them to eat it, eh? I mean, maybe you just want to see how it all turns out. Maybe it's all part of a great, big, ineffable plan. All of it. You, me, him, everything. Some great big test to see if what you've built all works properly, eh? You start thinking, it can't be a great cosmic game of chess. It has to be just very complicated solitaire. 
And don't bother to answer. If we could understand, we wouldn't be us. Because it's all... all... Ineffable, said the figure feeding the ducks. Yeah, right, uh, thanks. They watched the tall stranger carefully dispose of the empty bag in a litter bin and stalk away across the grass. Then Crowley shook his head. Uh, what was I saying? he said. Don't know, said Aziraphale. Nothing very important, I think. Crowley nodded gloomily. Let me tempt you to some lunch, he hissed. They went to the Ritz again, where a table was mysteriously vacant. And perhaps the recent exertions had had some fallout in the nature of reality. Because while they were eating, for the first time ever, a nightingale sang in Berkeley Square. No one heard it over the noise of the traffic, but it was there right enough. It was one o'clock on Sunday. For the last decade, Sunday lunch in Witchfinder Sergeant Shadwell's world had followed an invariable routine. He would sit at the rickety cigarette-burned table in his room, thumbing through an elderly copy of one of the Witchfinder Army Libraries, footnote, Witchfinder Corporal Carpet Librarian, 11 pence per annum bonus, books on magic and demonology, the Necrotelecomnicon, or the Liber Fulvarum Paginarum, or, his old favourite, the Malleus Maleficarum. Footnote. A relentless blockbuster of a book heartily recommended. Pope Innocent VIII. Then there would be a knock on the door, and Madame Tracy would call out, Lunch, Mr Shadwell! And Shadwell would mutter, Shameless hussy! and wait sixty seconds to allow the shameless hussy time to get back into her room. Then he'd open the door and pick up the plate of liver, which was usually carefully covered by another plate to keep it warm. And he'd take it in, and he'd eat it, taking moderate care not to spill any gravy on the pages he was reading. Footnote. To the right collector, the Witchfinder Army's library would have been worth millions. The right collector would have to have been very rich and not have minded gravy stains, cigarette burns, marginal notations, or the late witchfinder Lance Corporal Watling's passion for drawing moustaches and spectacles on all woodcut illustrations of witches and demons. That lunch routine was what always happened. Except on that Sunday it didn't. For a start, he wasn't reading, he was just sitting. And when the knock came on the door, he got up immediately and opened it. He needn't have hurried. There was no plate. There was just Madame Tracy wearing a cameo brooch and an unfamiliar shade of lipstick. She was also standing in the centre of a perfume zone. Aye, Jezebel. Madame Tracy's voice was bright and fast and brittle with uncertainty. Now, hello, uh, Mr. S. I was just thinking, after all we've been through in the last two days, it seems silly for me to leave a plate out for you, so I've set a place for you. Come on. Mr. S.? Shadwell followed warily. He'd had another dream last night. He didn't remember it properly, just one phrase that still echoed in his head and disturbed him. The dream had vanished into a haze, like the events of the previous night. It was this. Nothing wrong with witch-finding. I'd like to be a witch-finder. It's just, well, you've got to take it in turns. 
Today we'll go out witch-finding, and tomorrow we could hide, and it'd be the witch's turn to find us. For the second time in twenty-four hours, the second time in his life, he entered Madame Tracy's rooms. Sit down there, she told him, pointing to an armchair. It had an antimacassar on the headrest, a plumped-up pillow on the seat, and a small footstool. He sat down. She placed a tray on his lap and watched him eat, and removed his plate when he had finished. Then she opened a bottle of Guinness, poured it into a glass, and gave it to him, then sipped her tea while he slurped his stout. When she put her cup down, it tinkled nervously in the saucer. "'I've got a tidy bit put away,' she said, apropos of nothing. "'And, you know, I sometimes think it would be a nice thing to get a little bungalow in the country somewhere. Move out of London. I'd call it the Laurels, or Dunroman, or... or... "'Shangri-la,' suggested Shadwell, and for the life of him could not think why. "'Exactly, Mr. S., exactly. Shangri-la.' She smiled at him. "'Are you comfy, love?' Shadwell realised with dawning horror that he was comfortable. Horribly, terrifyingly comfortable. "'Aye,' he said warily. He had never been so comfortable. Madame Tracy opened another bottle of Guinness and placed it in front of him. "'Only trouble with having a little bungalow called... Uh, "'What was your clever idea, Mr. S?' Uh, Shangri-La. Shangri-La, exactly. Is that it's not right for one, is it? I mean, two people, or they say two, can live as cheaply as one. Or 518, thought Shadwell, remembering the massed ranks of the Witchfinder army. She giggled. I just wonder where I could find someone to settle down with. Shadwell realised that she was talking about him. He wasn't sure about this. He had a distinct feeling that leaving Witchfinder Private Pulsifer with the young lady in Tadfield had been a bad move, as far as the Witchfinder Army Book of Rules and Regulations was concerned, and this seemed even more dangerous. Still... At his age, when you're getting too old to go crawling about in the long grass, when the chill morning dew gets into your bones. And tomorrow we could hide, and it'd be the witch's turn to find us. Madame Tracy opened another bottle of Guinness and giggled. Oh, Mr. S., she said. You'll be thinking I'm trying to get you tiddly. He grunted. There was a formality that had to be observed in all this. Witchfinder Sergeant Shadwell took a long, deep drink of Guinness, and he popped the question. Madame Tracy giggled. Honestly, you old silly, she said, and she blushed a deep red. How many do you think? He popped it again. Two, said Madame Tracy. Ah, well... That's all right, then, said Witchfinder Sergeant Shadwell, retired. It was Sunday afternoon. High over England, a 747 droned westwards. In the first-class cabin, a boy called Warlock put down his comic and stared out of the window. It had been a very strange couple of days. 
He still wasn't certain why his father had been called to the Middle East. He was pretty sure that his father didn't know either. It was probably something cultural. All that had happened was a lot of funny-looking guys with towels on their heads and very bad teeth had shown them around some old ruins. As ruins went, Warlock had seen better. And then one of the old guys had said to him, Wasn't there anything he wanted to do? And Warlock had said he'd like to leave. They looked very unhappy about that. And now he was going back to the States. There had been some sort of problem with tickets or flights or airport destination boards or something. It was weird. He was pretty sure his father had meant to go back to England. Warlock liked England. It was a nice country to be an American in. The plane was at that point passing right above the lower Tadfield bedroom of Greasy Johnson, who was aimlessly leafing through a photography magazine that he'd bought merely because it had a rather good picture of a tropical fish on the cover. A few pages below Greasy's listless finger was a spread on American football and how it was really catching on in Europe, which was odd, because when the magazine had been printed, those pages had been about photography in desert conditions. It was about to change his life. And Warlock flew on to America. He deserved something. After all, you never forget the first friends you ever had, even if you were all a few hours old at the time. And the power that was controlling the fate of all mankind at that precise time was thinking, Well, he's going to America, isn't he? Don't see how you could have anything better than going to America. They've got 39 flavours of ice cream there. Maybe even more. There were a million exciting things a boy and his dog could be doing on a Sunday afternoon. Adam could think of four or five hundred of them without even trying. Thrilling things, stirring things, planets to be conquered, lions to be tamed, lost South American worlds teeming with dinosaurs to be discovered and befriended. He sat in the garden and scratched in the dirt with a pebble, looking despondent. His father had found Adam asleep on his return from the airbase, sleeping, to all intents and purposes, as if he had been in bed all evening, even snoring once in a while, for verisimilitude. At breakfast the next morning, however, it was made clear that this had not been enough. Mr. Young disliked gallivanting about on a Saturday evening on a wild goose chase. And if by some unimaginable fluke Adam was not responsible for the night's disturbances, whatever they had been, since nobody had seemed very clear on the details, only that there had been disturbances of some sort, then he was undoubtedly guilty of something. This was Mr. Young's attitude, and it had served him well for the last eleven years. Adam sat dispiritedly in the garden. The August sun hung high in an August blue and cloudless sky, and behind the hedge a thrush sang, but it seemed to Adam that this was simply making it all much worse. Dog sat at Adam's feet. He had tried to help, chiefly by exhuming a bone he had buried four days earlier and dragging it to Adam's feet, but all Adam had done was stare at it gloomily, and eventually Dog had taken it away and inhumed it once more. He had done all he could. Adam? Adam turned. Three faces stared over the garden fence. Hi, said Adam disconsolately. There's a circus come to Norton, said Pepper, 
Wensley was down there, and he saw them. They're just setting up. It's got tents and elephants and jugglers and practically wild animals and stuff and, and everything, said Wensleydale. We thought maybe we'd all go down there and watch them setting up, said Brian. For an instant, Adam's mind swam with visions of circuses. Circuses were boring once they were set up. You could see better stuff on television any day. But the setting up... Of course they'd all go down there, and they'd help them put up the tents and wash the elephants, and the circus people would be so impressed with Adam's natural rapport with animals, such that that night Adam and Dog, the world's most famous performing mongrel, would lead the elephants into the circus ring, and... It was no good. He shook his head sadly. Can't go anywhere, he said. They said so. There was a pause. Adam, said Pepper, a trifle uneasily, what did happen last night? Adam shrugged. Just stuff. Doesn't matter, he said. It's always the same. All you do is try to help, and people would think you murdered someone or something. There was another pause, while the them stared at their fallen leader. When do you think they'll let you out, then? asked Pepper. Not for years and years. Years and years and years. I'll be an old man by the time they let me out, said Adam. How about tomorrow? asked Wensleydale. Adam brightened. Oh, tomorrow will be all right, he pronounced. They'll have forgotten about it by then, you'll see. They always do. He looked up at them, a scruffy Napoleon with his laces trailing, exiled to a rose-trellised elbow. You all go he told them with a brief, hollow laugh. Don't you worry about me. I'll be all right. I'll see you all tomorrow. The them hesitated. Loyalty was a great thing, but no lieutenants should be forced to choose between their leader and a circus with elephants. They left. The sun continued to shine. The thrush continued to sing. Dog gave up on his master and began to stalk a butterfly in the grass by the garden hedge. This was a serious, solid, impassable hedge of thick and well-trimmed privet, and Adam knew it of old. Beyond it stretched open fields and wonderful muddy ditches and unripe fruit and irate but slow-foot owners of fruit trees and circuses and streams to dam and walls and trees just made for climbing. But there was no way through the hedge. Adam looked thoughtful. Dog, said Adam sternly, get away from that hedge, because if you went through it, then I'd have to chase you to catch you, and I'd have to go out of the garden, and I'm not allowed to do that, but I'd have to if you went and ran away. Dog jumped up and down excitedly and stayed where he was. Adam looked around carefully. Then... Even more carefully, he looked up and down and then inside. Then, and now there was a large hole in the hedge, large enough for a dog to run through and for a boy to squeeze through after him. And it was a hole that had always been there. Adam winked at Dog. Dog ran through the hole in the hedge, and shouting clearly, loudly, and distinctly, Dog, you bad dog, stop! Come back here! Adam squeezed through after him.
something told him that something was coming to an end. Not the world, exactly. Just the summer. There would be other summers. But there would never be one like this. Ever again. Better make the most of it, then. He stopped halfway across the field. Someone was burning something. He looked at the plume of white smoke above the chimney of Jasmine Cottage, and he paused, and he listened. Adam could hear things that other people might miss. He could hear laughter. It wasn't a witch's cackle. It was the low and earthy guffaw of someone who knew a great deal more than could possibly be good for them. The white smoke writhed and curled above the cottage chimney. For a fraction of an instant, Adam saw, outlined in the smoke, a handsome female face, a face that hadn't been seen on earth for over three hundred years. Agnes Nutter winked at him. The light summer breeze dispersed the smoke, and the face and the laughter were gone. Adam grinned and began to run once more. In a meadow a short distance away, across a stream, the boy caught up with the wet and muddy dog. Bad dog, said Adam, scratching dog behind the ears. Dog yapped ecstatically. Adam looked up. Above him hung an old apple tree, gnarled and heavy. It might have been there since the dawn of time. Its boughs were bent with the weight of apples, small and green and unripe. With the speed of a striking cobra, the boy was up the tree. He returned to the ground seconds later with his pockets bulging, munching noisily on a tart and perfect apple. "'Hey, you boy!' came a gruff voice from behind him. "'You're that Adam Young. I can see you. I'll tell your father about you. You see if I don't.' Parental retribution was now a certainty, thought Adam, as he bolted, his dog by his side, his pockets stuffed with stolen fruit. It always was, but it wouldn't be till this evening.' And this evening was a long way off. He threw the apple core back in the general direction of his pursuer, and he reached into a pocket for another. He couldn't see why people made such a fuss about people eating their silly old fruit anyway. But life would be a lot less fun if they didn't. And there never was an apple, in Adam's opinion, that wasn't worth the trouble you got into for eating it. If you want to imagine the future... Imagine a boy and his dog and his friends and a summer that never ends. And if you want to imagine the future, imagine a boot, no, imagine a sneaker, laces trailing, kicking a pebble. Imagine a stick to poke at interesting things and throw for a dog that may or may not decide to retrieve it. Imagine a tuneless whistle pounding some luckless popular song into insensibility. Imagine a figure, half angel, half devil, all human, slouching, hopefully, towards Tadfield forever. This recording of Good Omens by Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett was produced and directed by Dennis Kao 
and performed by Martin Jarvis. It was recorded at the Invisible Studios by Mark Holden and was edited by Fred Koch. We hope you've enjoyed this program from Harper Audio. For more information about the broad range of titles from Harper Audio, Harper Children's Audio and Cadman, please visit our website at www.harperaudio.com. Thank you for listening.